Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, this is going to sound a little weird, but uh, I love the smell and the feel of recording studios. If you've ever been inside a proper one, you'll know what I mean. The air is kept clean and dust-free to protect the equipment. The AC is usually cranked up to offset the heat generated by the electronics. There's a slight whiff of ozone created by all those electrical circuits, and it's usually very, very quiet. Loads of isolation and baffling and soundproofing. To me, a recording studio is the musical equivalent of an operating theater, a place that's dedicated to one thing and one thing only, and what goes on within those walls is deadly serious. Okay, I'm I'm not saying that recording a song is the same as a heart transplant or something, but, you know, there's that same sort of vibe. There used to be dozens, hundreds of these places around the planet, and people would travel thousands of kilometers to work at a specific location because, well, they were thought to be magical places, uh, temples of some sort. But that's when you needed a fully equipped recording studio to make a record. Today, you can do a pretty good job with a laptop in your bedroom. Many of the legendary studios are gone, a victim of the changing economics of the music industry. But a few of these behemoths still exist. This is another look at the world's legendary recording studios, both past and present. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this time we're going to tour legendary recording studios around the world. Now, we've done this before, dropping into places like Abbey Road, Sound City, The Power Station, Metalworks, Grant Avenue, La Studio, The Warehouse, and a few others. For this chapter, I've made a list of more studios, places where some iconic music was made and preserved for all time. And we're going to start with a place with a special blue plaque over its front door, denoting that it's a location of historic significance to all of Great Britain. And this is Trident Studios in Soho, which is down a narrow lane called St. Anne's Court in London. It was founded and built in 1967 as a full-service music recording facility, and it quickly gained a reputation as the studio with the loudest control room in all of London. It is said that the monitors could be turned up so high that the sound would actually blow back your hair. Not good for the ears, but cool. The studio was pretty state-of-the-art. It might have been the first UK studio to offer eight-track recording. Now, that's disputed, but it was certainly the first to offer 16-track recording. Trident was hired by Elton John for albums like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It's here that the Boomtown Rats recorded I Don't Like Mondays. T-Rex did Electric Warrior in the building. Lou Reed did all of Transformer here, including Walk on the Wild Side. Supertramp, Crime of the Century. Uh, a bunch of Genesis albums. Queen, The Rolling Stones, Rush, Peter Gabriel, and dozens more. They all recorded at Trident. 
People think that the Beatles did all their recordings at Abbey Road. Not true. In fact, they used Trident to record at least half a dozen songs, including Hey Jude. But then there's that blue plaque above the door. It marks Trident as the spot where David Bowie did so much of his early work, starting with Space Oddity in 1969 through to Pinups in 1973. And he was also the first client to use the studio's brand new 16-track technology. And I love this. One of Rock's most famous pianos lives in that building. It's a handmade C. Beckstein Concert Grand that's well over 100 years old. And people who know piano say it's exceptionally bright-sounding, probably because the hammers that hit the strings have hardened just right over that century. And the keys are a little stiff, too, so anyone who plays it must use a little more gusto than usual. This is the piano that we hear Paul McCartney playing on Hey Jude. Freddie Mercury is playing on, on the Queen song Killer Queen and a bunch of other Queen songs. A bunch of early Elton John has played on this piano, like Saturday Night's All Right for Fightin'. And pretty much every other piano recorded at Trident. Now let's have a listen to something that Bowie recorded there. We'll go back to 1972 and the Ziggy Stardust album. Rick Wakeman of Yes was called into play, that Beckstein. And that was because he was the studio's house pianist at the time. If you needed a piano part played, you called Rick Wakeman. He would have been set up at the entrance to the recording space, a long, narrow room. And it's also quite possible that the microphones were arranged in the nearby men's bathroom because there was something special about the natural reverb in there that just made a recording sound so special. As I ask her to vote for some singers piping in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go It's a freaky show Recorded in August 1971 at Trident Studios in the Soho area of London, there's Bowie with Life on Mars with Rick Wakeman playing the 100-year-old Beckstein piano. Trident still operates in the same location today, although it no longer takes on clients to record albums. It's used just for voiceovers and other production projects. We're going to stay in London for the next studio, which is Wessex Studios. They were in an old church hall, St. Augustine's Church, in a very residential area in Islington of North London. The church, which is still a church, is out on the street, but there's a narrow lane taking you back to where the hall was. This was a big gothic-y place built in 1881 and then converted into a studio in 1966. Its main room was 50 feet by 30 feet with a 15-foot ceiling, making it big enough for orchestras. Because it had a really live sound, a lot of punk bands and post-punk bands like using the place, The Clash and The Damned and Susie and the Banshees and The Pretenders and The Specials and Generation X and The Sex Pistols. I think it's kind of wild that all these punk bands recorded in an old church hall I'm going to play something in a second, but first I need to tell you what to listen for. When the Pistols recorded this next song, they were down to just three members. There was Johnny Rotten, guitarist Steve Jones, and drummer Paul Cook. Bass player Glenn Matlock had been fired, so it was up to Steve to play the bass parts. Producer Chris Thomas was also a little deaf in his left ear, so he had something of a hard time perceiving true stereo. So he came up with something he called Mono Deluxe. What he would do is have Steve Jones play his guitar parts and then play them again. The original part was left in the center of the mix, while another version of it was cranked hard over to the left speaker. Then, Chris took a third version, 
shifted its pitch ever so slightly and cranked that over to the right speaker. These are all Steve Jones's guitar parts. That pitch shifting created a barely there imperfection on the right side that added some rawness to the performance. And then, by duplicating the guitar part with the bass but one octave lower, Thomas came up with the signature Sex Pistols studio sound. This song is from Nevermind the Bollocks. It was recorded that way. Here's Holidays in the Sun. The Sex Pistols with Holiday in the Sun, recorded at Wessex Studios in the old church hall behind St. Augustine's Church in North London. Now, we can tie another thing to Wessex. Remember how I said that Queen recorded at Trident Studios? Well, Queen had some kind of dispute with Trident, and they moved some of their recording sessions to Wessex. The guy who worked with them at Trident had a son who was also in a band. Okay, it doesn't matter about the name of the group because they went nowhere. The Trident dude took his son and his band over to Wessex to help Queen get set up. And when they got there, they found that the studio was under renovation and there were these big piles of wood all over the place. So the Trident guy had an idea. Okay, go get your mates and go stomp on that wood. Let's see what it sounds like and I'll record it. And maybe I can use it for something. So they did. This was the ultimate result. That's pretty cool, right? Some kids stomping on some discarded wood in the hall at Wessex Studios. Did the kids ever get royalties from playing on one of Queen's most famous songs? <laughs> no, of course not. Wessex Studios no longer exists, by the way. It was sold in 2003, and that old church hall now consists of nine luxury apartments. By the way, the building is now called The Recording Studio. Our next studio was also in London, and it also no longer exists. The building that housed Olympic Studios spent 50 years as a movie theater before it was turned into a TV studio in the late 1950s. And then in 1965, the facility was bought and turned into a proper recording studio. For a while, Olympic had equal stature to Abbey Road. Everybody wanted to work there. Studio One was huge, 62 by 42 feet. But the ceiling was low, less than 9 feet. There was a smaller second studio that measured 20 by 14, but it had a 14-foot ceiling. And then finally, Studio 3, which was slightly smaller than Studio 2, but with a lower ceiling. There were plenty of stairwells, too, and that was important because they were used as natural generators of reverb, including one that was supposed to be used as an emergency exit. The Rolling Stones made six consecutive albums at Olympic between 1966 and 1972. This is where the Beatles recorded All You Need Is Love for their 1968 satellite broadcast. Jimi Hendrix also worked here. The soundtrack for the Rocky Horror Picture Show was done in Studio 2. Led Zeppelin did a lot of their early work here, including songs like Whole Lot of Love. And Roger Daltrey's famous scream near the end of The Who's Won't Get Fooled Again was recorded at Olympic. Oasis, U2, The Arctic Monkeys, The Killers, Depeche Mode, Morrissey, Pink Floyd, Massive Attack, The Spice Girls, Adele, and dozens and dozens of others made legendary albums at Olympic. But then came the financial crisis of 2008, combined with the changing economics of the music industry. It just wasn't possible to maintain such an expensive facility 
when recording budgets had been slashed to the bone. So Olympic closed in 2009, and it's gone from whence it came. It is now a two-screen cinema, just like it started out to be over 100 years ago. However, if you ever find yourself at the National Music Center in Calgary, you should be able to find one of the famous modular consoles used at Olympic Studios in the late 60s and early 70s. If you have records by The Who and Led Zeppelin, there is a very good chance the music went through that exact hardware. All right, now let's listen to something recorded at Olympic. The Verb's entire third album was made there in Studio One. We're going to visit one more studio in London, England before we move elsewhere. Actually, we're going to kind of talk about a series of studios founded by Beatles producer George Martin. When George was working with the Beatles during the first half of their career, he was a salaried employee of EMI Recording Studios. No matter how successful the Beatles became, no matter how many records they sold, George did not receive any royalties as their producer. All he got was his tiny weekly salary. This naturally annoyed him a lot. I mean, wouldn't you be upset? And when EMI turned him down again to have his pay structure modified, he quit. That was 1965. The Beatles then hired him back, and he continued to work with them as a contractor, not as an employee of EMI. His new company was called Associated Independent Recording, or AIR. And over the years, there have been a number of facilities working under the name AIR Studios. The first was at the corner of Oxford and Regent Street, right on Oxford Circus, as a matter of fact, right above the tube station. More specifically, in an old marble banquet hall on the fourth floor of the Peter Robinson department store. George sunk an awful lot of money into that place, over $6 million, which was a fortune for that time. Air Studios opened in 1970, and it remained in operation until 1991. It featured four separate studios, including a big one that could accommodate up to 50 musicians at a time, which was great for orchestras that were scoring movies. There was a 56-track recording console that was custom-made just for George. But after a while, it became just too expensive to maintain the Oxford Street address. So in 1991, Eyre moved to an old church that was built in 1880 in North London. Eyre Lindhurst Hall is still in operation, and is, yes, used a lot for recording music, but also for movie scores and sound effects for video games. In between was Air Montserrat in the Caribbean. Now, we covered that studio in the last program. This was the one destroyed by Hurricane Hugo in 1989 and never rebuilt. It's still lying in ruins on the island of Montserrat. Rush, the police, the Rolling Stones, Dire Straits, they all use that place. But let's go back to the Lindhurst Hall location for a second. Artists love Studio One. It's a big hexagon. It has 300 square meters of space to move around in. Now, to give you an idea how big that is, you can have an entire orchestra and a full choir set up and performing at the same time. Clients have included U2, Adele, Kate Bush, Liam Gallagher, Coldplay, Muse, and Mumford & Sons. Their entire 2015 album, Wilder Mind, was made there.
Mumford & Sons with Believe, recorded at George Martin's Air Studios, the third version in North London. Time to move to North America, and when we come back, a famous studio that was supposed to be a nightclub. This is another program of the world's most famous recording studios, past and present. And now that we've covered off a chunk of London, we're moving to North America. Electric Lady in Greenwich Village in New York is still in operation. Jimi Hendrix oversaw its construction. And I had a chance to talk to longtime Hendrix producer Eddie Kramer about the place. In 69, uh, Jimmy bought a nightclub, which is a place he loved to jam in. It's called the Generation Nightclub. And <laughs> he, uh, he just bought it with his manager. I, need, I want to jam here because this is my place. I love this place. Okay, that's, that's fine. But uh, what are you going to do with it? So one day I get a phone call from, the, from Jimmy's office. Hey, why don't you come down? We want you to see this, this place. Because Jimmy wants to put a little tiny eight-track studio in the back corner. Like, oh, okay, fine. So I go downstairs and look at the space and say, are you crazy? Are you out of your freaking minds? You want to do a nightclub? No, no, no. Do you know how much Jimmy was spending in 1969 dollars? 300000 a year, which was an insane amount because he was always in the studio recording, which is how we got where we're going We're going to come to that. We're okay. going to come to that. So I, we designed Electric Lady. For Jimmy, it was the first time this was a studio that was built for the artist, so that it was Jimmy's place. It was the most beautiful, and to this day, it's still one of the great studios in the world, thank God. And it's, uh, he loved it. By the way, he said to me, he only said one thing to me, he said, hey man, I want some round windows. Oh, okay, Jimmy, round windows. So we cut in the doors going into the control room, we, we had a get a plasma cutter and cut these holes and put glass in there and and when you want to say Jim, see yeah, yeah, cool man. <laughs> so electric lady opens when? We it took us a year and it was about a million dollars in nineteen sixty nine, early seventy. We opened unofficially May of nineteen seventy. Okay, so this the, the building had already been purchased or the space had already been purchased. So it was a million dollars to outfit it? Mm. Well, there's two studios, you know. Still, a lot of money. A lot of money in those days. And 8-track, 16-track? 16. 16. So that would have been state-of-the-art at the time. It was the state-of-the-art. In fact, we had it wired for 24-track, because within, you know, very, very shortly after Jimmy died, we were up to 24. Well, let's, let's talk about that technological leap, because um, after 8-track, well, after 4-track, Usually, it started as mono, mono, two track, three track, four, then eight, then twelve, which we actually had, which was a bastard kind of formation. It was twelve tracks on one inch, and then we scrapped that because it was a piece of junk. Actually, it was disgusting. It was horrifying. And then we got the, six, the first sixteen track. So rock became more complicated because it could be, because mm -hmm. you had more tracks to play with. Mm -hmm. And then we got two twenty-four synced together, and then you had. Uh, 46 tracks. And they, you know, bounce down, bounce back, and all the rest of it. Don't get me started. Wow. Because of the Hendrix connection, so many people have recorded at Electric Lady over the years. ACDC, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, Weezer, Rancid, Billy Idol, the list just goes on and on and on. I've picked this. It's a song by The Clash, 
that they recorded at Electric Lady in March of 1980 for the Sandinista album. They were working downstairs while the Rolling Stones were recording the Emotional Rescue album in another studio. They also didn't really want to be there. The Clash had been working at another studio called The Power Station, but The Clash were kicked out when the money ran out. In between the two studio sessions, Joe Strummer had plenty of time to wander New York where he started to pick up on the sounds of rap. Grandmaster Flash became a favorite. And this song definitely features those early rap influences. It's The Clash and The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven. Ring, ring, 7 a.m. Move yourself to go again. Cold water in the face brings you back to this awful place. The Clash from Sandinista and The Magnificent Seven recorded at Jimi Hendrix's Electric Lady Studios, which is still in operation at 52 West 8th Street in New York City. These next legendary studios are grouped in the middle of nowhere, in Sheffield, Alabama, which is in the far northern part of the state. The first facility is Fame Recording. This is on Avalon Avenue. It was built at a former tobacco warehouse in about 1960, and it gained a reputation as the place for soul, blues, and R&B musicians to make records. In an era of severe racism and discrimination, it was also known as a place where black artists could work undisturbed. Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, Etta James, they all recorded there. And then later, the Rolling Stones and the Allman Brothers made pilgrimages to recorded fame. They wanted to soak up the vibe. And then came a flood of country artists. Then came Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, a modest sort of place founded in 1969 by four session musicians from fame who went by the name the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. More Rolling Stones, more Aretha Franklin, Paul Simon, Leonard Skinner. That place closed in 1979 and ended up as, of all things, an appliance store. All the gear was either moved to another facility or sold off. But the Black Keys later had an idea. They wanted to record their sixth album at Muscle Shoals. They had to do it in that studio, even though the place hadn't been used to make records for years. But it didn't matter. They brought in all their own equipment. They worked through the dust and the cobwebs and recorded 10 tracks from the Brothers album there. This is how desperate they were in absorbing the vibes that lingered in the walls. Here's an example of one of the songs recorded there. The Black Keys and Tighten Up from the Brothers album, recorded in what was, at the time, the abandoned Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in northern Alabama. The building has been rescued. It's now a historic site, protected by the state. It's been restored, complete with a lot of vintage equipment, thanks largely to a $1 million donation from Beats Headphones. It's open for tours daily, and if you're into music documentaries, there's one called Muscle Shoals that details everything. Next up, it's time to head to Canada for one of the few residential studios left in the country. If you drive into Kingston, Ontario, follow Bath Road West along the lake. On your left will be Amherst Island. Eventually, you'll come to a lakeside parking lot. Across the road on the north side is a building that dates back to 1842. This is the bathhouse, the live-work recording facility owned by the Tragically Hip. The place used to be a coach stop for people heading along the lake east to New York and then west to Toronto. It is one of the few places in Canada where you can move in for as long as it takes to make your album. The Hip bought it in the early 1990s and turned it from a bed and breakfast into a recording facility. 
The control room is on the main floor and features all kinds of vintage gear. In fact, the console was once used by The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was still the host. There are a couple of rooms on the other side of the hall where you can set up your instruments. Moving across the hall again is another room that features a massive piano. At the back is a full kitchen, and beyond that is storage and a load-in, load-out area. If you head upstairs, there are bedrooms and a pool room with a really nice pool table. And if you proceed further into the back, you'll find the Tragically Hips rehearsal space. Now, if you've ever seen the documentary Long Time Running, you've seen that space. The last time I was there, a mic stand from the final Tragically Hip gig was standing in Gord Downey's place. On the floor was a set list from the final show. And next to that was a pair of Gord's boots. It's a pretty sacred sort of spot. Elsewhere on the property is a basketball court, a swimming pool, a horseshoe pit, a pitch and putt golf area, and a couple of places for barbecues and bonfires. In the winter, there's a hockey pond. So in other words, the place is just about everything anyone would ever want to record in privacy and comfort. Blue Rodeo, Ronnie Hawkins, Sam Roberts, Big Wreck, and dozens and dozens of others have worked there. But uh, of course, if we're going to play something, it has to be a track from the hip, right? This is from the Phantom Power album in 1998. And the yellow aviation contraption that we see on the cover is actually sitting on a shelf in one of the recording rooms. This is Poets. Poets from the Tragically Hip recorded at their own studio, The Bathhouse, west of Kingston, Ontario. There's one more studio I need to mention in this episode, and it has a very strange Canadian connection. It's the famous Rolling Stones Mobile Recording Studio. Back in 1968, the Stones decided they wanted to record on their own time and in places of their own choosing and on their own schedule. The first solution was to record at Mick Jagger's country house. He had none of the necessary equipment, so a bunch of stuff had to be loaded into a van. Hang on, somebody said. Why don't we just make the van the studio? We can put the control room in there and then just snake all the necessary cables and wiring to where we're actually playing. So that's what they did. A company called Helios Electronics was hired to build the 10-meter-long truck, and it was an amazing success. Not only did the Rolling Stones use it to record a couple of albums this way, including Exile on Main Street, where the truck was parked outside Keith Richards' villa in southern France, but all their friends wanted to use it too. Led Zeppelin used the Rolling Stones' mobile to record no fewer than four albums, including their Led Zeppelin 4 album with Stairway to Heaven and Black Dog and Rock and Roll on it. They set up the truck outside a country manor called Headley Grange. It was also used by Bad Company and Simple Minds and Dire Straits and Santana and Iron Maiden and others. It's even immortalized in the Deep Purple song, Smoke on the Water. Here, listen. And it's also mentioned here. The Rolling Stones mobile was used quite a bit through the 70s and 80s. And before I tell you what happened to it, let's hear a recording that was made with it in 1975. This is Bob Marley. 
Bob Marley and the Wailers, recorded live at the Lyceum Theatre in London on July 19, 1975, on a record called Live, and it was all captured using the Rolling Stones' mobile recording truck. Okay, so what, what happened to the truck? Well, it was decommissioned in 1993 and sold to a New York company, which refurbished it and put it back to work. The truck was used to record live performances by a long line of punk bands from the Ramones on down. Some years later, it was found in New Jersey, where it was purchased by the National Music Center in Calgary. That's where it lives today. The Rolling Stones mobile recording truck lives in Calgary and continues to be used as a recording facility. We will have to revisit the concept of legendary recording studios again in the future because there are still so many more we could cover. Hansa in Berlin, Britannia Row in the Manor in the UK, Phase 1 in Toronto, Capital in Los Angeles, and then all the private ones like the Foo Fighters' own 606 Studios in Van Nuys, California. Meanwhile, you can catch up on this show via the podcast that we have available through iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. They're all free for the taking, too. You can find dozens and dozens and dozens of them at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Rate, review, and remember to subscribe. We're posting new episodes every week. I have my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. It is updated every single day and also comes with a free newsletter every single day. And we can connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. He has his recording studio and I have mine. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.